we can release our children at this time. Praise the Lord for all of our faithful ladies that work every Sunday to minister to our children. You're such a blessing to the body of Christ. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. got a long reading for today, chapter 19, 1 through 18, so it's a long passage. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message Messenger to Ahab, um, let me start over. <laughs> Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat under a broom tree. And as he prayed that, the, that he might die, and said, It's enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there was by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that, 40, of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Or jealous, probably a, a better rendering of that word. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Then he said, Go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I 
I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael, king of Syria, and you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholon, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Lord, there is so, so much in this passage. And so we just ask right now that the Holy Spirit would anoint each one in this room. And we claim the promise in 1 John that we have an anointing so that we don't need to be taught by any other than by the Spirit of Christ. And Lord, as we walk through this passage, Father, I pray that we will use it as a mirror and we will be honest with ourselves, God. God, we will see your solution to overcome discouragement. God, discouragement is real. And it's real because we're fleshly people. And because, God, we live in bodies of clay. And, Lord, we're not going to be complete until we see you. So, Father, I pray that you would help us today. Help anyone, God, who's dealing with those emotions of discouragement, of despair, of despondency. God, I pray that we would hear your voice and that we would ask that question of ourselves. Lord, why are we here at this spot? How did we get here? What prompted us to to sense this discouragement? And God, is it your voice that we've stopped listening to? Is it our emotions that we're listening to? And so, Father, I pray that we'll see biblical solutions for despondency and that we will respond accordingly to your word. We pray this for Jesus' sake. We pray it for your kingdom's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Um, I just want to reiterate something that Keith said, um, kind of a detour here from our text, but um, we had run out of books this morning for our Sunday school hour, which is incredible. He had 20 books, and so um, I'm excited about us as a congregation learning to share our faith effectively. So um, you only missed one lesson, and it was just sort of a motivator to say, hey, people are clueless, um, and and they really are. Uh, I think the percentages of of Utah are a little exaggerated when they say 6% are believers in Christ. But what that means is if you talk to 100 people, probably 95 of them wouldn't know Christ. And the other statistic that really hit me was on the video is that about 2% of the Christian population share their faith. No wonder we're so ineffective as a church. So let's, let's 
be motivated. And um, as a church, this is the way we want to grow. We want to grow by seeing people come into the kingdom of heaven. Um, so our, our topic this morning, overcoming discouragement. If you're not discouraged this morning, take heart. It's just around the corner. <laughs> you're going to get discouraged. It's, it happens to everybody. It even happened to Elijah, of all people. And after such a wonderful victory to go from the height of Mount Carmel to the despair of the desert, really just in the, in the moment of time, it didn't take much. And it just shows you how, how frail each one of us are. Um, John the Baptist is a type of Elijah character, a man who was bold and confronted kings, a man who knew the voice of God and who, who Jesus was, but his expectations of the Messiah weren't exactly what he was thinking they were going to be. He went around telling everybody, behold the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sin of the world. He's going to change everything, and everything's going to be all right. That's the Messiah. And then when he confronts King Herod, he's thrown in prison, and his head is going to be on the chopping block pretty soon. And so he went from all excited and saying, yes, the kingdom of heaven is here, repent, to did I get it right? This doesn't look like what Messiah's kingdom is supposed to be like. I'm in prison. Herod's not going to let me out. Herodias, she, she hates my guts. And if she has her way, I'm going to be dead. And so he says, maybe I missed the voice of God. And he did. He was expecting something other than what God was going to do. And that's what led to John the Baptist's discouragement. And that's exactly what led to Elijah's discouragement. He was expecting God to do something, and God did not live up to what Elijah was hoping God was going to do. And that can lead to discouragement. I look at this and I say, what was Elijah expecting to happen? Elijah was expecting with this final swoop to eradicate Baal worship and to see revival come to the nation of Israel. He was expected to see his vindication as a role of God's prophet. 850 of the prophets are gone. God brought fire down from heaven and he showed that he is the one true God. That God alone, Ahab, can bring rain and solve your problems. That your wickedness is the cause and the trouble of Israel. And it didn't happen. In fact, just the opposite happened. Elijah, you're going to be like one of those 850 by tomorrow. You're going to be dead. And so he runs, and, and, and he's expecting God to do certain things, and that's not what God was doing. And uh, he was expecting God to be seen in this incredible earthquake, the fire. And he was looking for this 
emotional and wonderful experience. And God says, sometimes you just need to find me in those quiet, alone places and hear my still small voice. God, I believe, still works most dramatically in the little unexpected things in life. I mean, we should pray and we should ask for God to do those mighty and wonderful things, but that's not where we live every single day of our life. The miracles are far and few between. Most of the time, it's just getting up, going to work, doing the same things over and over and over again, and you're thinking, what's it all about? Why am I doing this? I'm looking for something more. And God is saying to us today, you're doing exactly what I have called you to do. I, I call this, we need to sometimes liberate ourselves from what I call the success syndrome. Elijah was looking for some kind of success out of this miraculous answer to prayer and the falling of fire, and it didn't happen. And then he says, I am no better than my father's. He begins to compare himself with others. I, I look at my own ministry, and nearly 40 years ago, I started out pastoring a church of about 15 people. And that little church, within a year and a half, grew to about 70. And you know what? Almost 40 years have passed, and I'm in the exact same spot I was 40 years ago. But this is right where God wants me. There was a time when people would call me, and a, a pastor called me, and he asked how I was doing. And this is what I said. I said, I want to see a mighty movement of God just once in my lifetime. And God may never do that for me. But that's not what God has called me to do. And that's not what God had called Elijah to do. God had called Elijah to confront Ahab, to call out his wickedness, to address Israel with the option, are you going to serve Yahweh, the one true covenant God, or are you going to serve Baal? And then God said, I'm going to send you to a little widow woman in Zarephath, a Gentile, and that one Gentile is going to convert to the covenant God of Israel. And Elijah, if that's what I've called you to do, is that enough? And it's got to be enough. So we need to realign in our minds what true success is. True success isn't seeing the big events. It's not the emotional highs. It's not this wonderful thing that I can point back to and say, look what has happened. That is not success in God's terms. If it is, Jeremiah was a miserable failure. The man preached for 50 years. Never saw a convert. He preached and said, if you don't repent, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. The people never repented. He says, if you don't defect and go to Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to destroy the city. They never defected. And he came and destroyed the city. 
He came and preached. He says, don't run down to Egypt for help. What did they do? They ran down to Egypt for help. And Jeremiah had the same emotional feelings that Elijah had. He said, God, just come and end it all. Moses went through the same thing. Numbers chapter 11. He says, God, you have given me so much responsibility, and the people just will not listen. He says, just take my life. I'm no better than anybody else. Just take my life. And all three of those circumstances, they were looking for some kind of carnal fleshly results to their ministry. And if you have been faithful to what God has called you to do, you are a success in God's eyes. If you're a mom here today, and God has placed in your life children, and you've loved on those children, you've raised your children, and you've given them God's word, and your children aren't serving the Lord today, you are not a failure. Not in God's eyes. You are a success. You are not responsible for the way people react and respond to the word of God. You and I cannot change and influence hearts. That's the Holy Spirit's role. That's God's role. That's not our role. Our role is to be faithful with what God has called us to do. And Elijah had done that, but he was under this idea that I'm wanting more. I, I feel like he says to, that nothing has changed. He hoped for a changed heart in Ahab. And what does Ahab do? He runs home and tells Jezebel. He hoped Jezebel will realize that her gods are powerless. And I shouldn't have been killing the prophets of God. It doesn't work. Didn't, didn't, didn't change her. Elijah hoped that the altars of God would be restored, and they never were. We get discouraged when we feel like our work is all in vain. What did I do this for? I'm right back where I started. But our work is not in vain in the Lord, right? We know that verse. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in Christ. Nothing that you do for Jesus will not go recognized. I don't know if I said that right. Y'all unrecognized. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Maybe too many negatives in there. When you feel like your work is not recognized, in chapter 17, Elijah addresses Ahab, and he says, Elijah, Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel is before whom I stand, there will not be dew or rain until I say so, except at my word. And it happened, and yet Ahab's heart had never been changed. God sustained his life for three years, and yet what for, God? You kept me alive for three years and you sustained me by that widow and now nothing has changed in Israel? What's it all about? I challenged 850 prophets and 850 prophets could not bring fire down, but you could, Lord, and yet nobody's heart has changed. But this is exactly what God had called Ahab to do. We need to understand what biblical success really is. This is what you want to hear at the end of the script, well done, thou good and 
faithful servants. And Elijah, that's what God's going to tell him. End your discouragement by viewing success the way God does. Let's look at some things that God had done in Elijah's life that he had forgotten. God had faithfully provided for him in a cave. And he could have been rejoicing and said, God, you brought bread and water every single night by a raven. And then, God, when that dried up, you told me to go to Zarephath. And, God, you miraculously provided bread. The, the, the barrel never went dry, never went empty, and the flask of oil never went dry. God, not only did, God, did you do that, but, God, when that widow's little son passed away, God, you brought life back. And God, more importantly, you saved one individual. This is success, isn't it? I mean, boy, Elijah was able to go to a foreign country as a missionary and see a pagan lady come to faith in the one true God. One person saved. That's worth it, Elijah. Look at God's perspective. What is God doing? Obadiah. Obadiah had taken 100 servants of God and kept them alive during Jezebel's massacre. God, look what you're doing. Look who else is with me in this, this, pro, in this process of, of trying to revive Israel. You're not alone. We need to see what God is doing in our lives, don't we? Remember that old hymn, Count Your Blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God has done. That's what Elijah needed to do. So we need to liberate ourselves from this idea of success that the world calls success. And we need to understand what real success is. It's walking with God day by day being faithful to what he has called you to do. Stop looking for God in the wrong places. So he runs to the wilderness. He says, okay, she's after my life. I'm going to go hide. So he went and hid himself. Went out into the desert. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Then as he lay, he slept under the broom tree, and suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked of coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb to the mountain of God. God says, I'm going to take you from where you're at and I'm going to bring you back to the mountain of God where you can hear clearly from me. You're looking in the wrong places. Elijah, you're not just a one-man band. God is going to do what he wants to do in Elijah's life through the power of God and not through your own strength. Forty days, I think, is very symbolic. The Bible speaks of 40 days a lot of different times. And what God is doing in those 40 days, it's usually purging people from sin. It's preparing them for greater ministry. 
It's leading them in victory over temptation. And so, Elijah, I want you to get back in tune with me and stop looking for me in the wrong places. Forty days was an important time for lesson building. He needs to learn the character and the attributes of God all over again. He misunderstands God's purposes. When God asked Elijah in this cave, what are you doing here? I don't think it's so much a rebuke to Elijah saying, God is saying to Elijah, what what are you doing here? You don't belong here. I think he wants Elijah to internalize and to verbalize what's going on emotionally for him so that God can then redirect him and set him right. What are you doing here? I want you to to spend some time doing some inventory. Elijah, why are you here? What is it that has gotten you out of shape? Are you really listening to my call for your life? There's a huge difference between Moses and Elijah at this point. They're both in the exact same cave up on Mount Horeb. Both of them experience the presence of God. But these guys right now spiritually are, couldn't be more opposed. When Moses went to the cave of God, he was discouraged as well because God was going to annihilate the entire nation of Israel. And what did Moses do? God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Moses. And Moses says, no, God, don't do that. These are your people. These are the people that you made a covenant with. God, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Be merciful. And God says, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And I will be compassionate to whom I will be compassionate. What is Elijah wanting God to do? He says, Elijah's over here on the other extreme. He says, God, I have cursed your nation and they have no rain for three and a half years. I've brought about this punishment upon them. I've prayed for it, and God, you've answered it. God, I showed them that you're the one true God, and I brought fire down, and I convinced all of them that, that you're the only God. And then I took 850 prophets, and I slaughtered them. I executed them. And now, God, I want you to bring judgment on this nation. That's what Elijah's all about here. And God is not all about that. Elijah is misreading God's character. I want you to go over to Romans chapter 11 with me. I'm glad we don't have my clicker and my screen up here, because now you've got to know where your Bibles are at. <laughs> you've got to know where Romans is. Uh, amen, yes. Okay, Romans chapter 11. The Jews are asking a question, and Paul is answering the question. The question that the Jews are answering is, God, what are you doing with Israel? Why are Gentiles now getting in on what is our Messiah? And Paul answers that question the same way that he answered Moses. 
Who are you to answer back to God? Now, in this context, that what God is saying is that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have mercy on those who will humbly come to me and seek me by faith. Jew or Gentile, and who are you to question God? And I will harden whom I will harden. Now, that doesn't mean that God is picking some for salvation and rejecting other for salvation. What it means is God says, I have given Israel opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. I have been reaching out my hand all day long, all day long, all day long to rebellious and contrary people, and they would have none of me. Jesus said this in Matthew 23. He says, how many times, Israel, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers its chickens under its wings, but who does he put the onus on? Who does he put the responsibility on? He says, but you would not. You would not. And so they're asking that same question. And Elijah is saying, God, I've had enough of reaching out to this rebellious people. We get discouraged because God doesn't do what we think God should do. We want to see God bring down judgment on all this Woke garbage that we're seeing. We want to see God eradicate all this liberal stuff out of the Congress, and God's not doing it the way we want us to. You know what? God wants us to get down on our knees, and he wants God to bring repentance and revival to America. We're, 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 we don't like you know, the liberal churches that, that, that are flying the, the gay flags out in front of them. You know what we should be doing here? We should be loving those people. We should be praying for those people. We should be pleading with them that Jesus Christ is your answer, that Christ is the power to forgive. Christ is the power to cleanse. He is the power to transform lives. We are like Elijah so many times. God, just bring down your wrath and change things. And God says, I am not about that. I'm about what Moses was doing there up on the mountain. I am going to show you my glory because I want to rescue and save people. And when my judgment comes, it's in my time, not yours, Elijah. And it's not my time. It's not Patrick's time. It's God's time. We are living in the days where God is long-suffering because he's not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we need to get off this, and we need to see God, the way God is working in people's lives. So let's get over here to read Romans 11. Certainly not. God has not cast away his poor, pe- his poor people whom he foreknew. He still knows those people. He still loves them. Look what it says. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? What was Elijah doing up there in the mountain? How he pleaded with God against Israel. It was, I had never seen this in my entire life. I love it when God shows me something I've never seen before. And every time I open up the word of God, it's like God's saying, Patrick, you're such, you're such a, a cotton-headed ninny-mongin. I mean, I mean, it's been there for forever. Just start reading it and start believing it and start internalizing what God is saying. And it's so beautiful that all of these passages of the Bible, from 1 Kings to the book of Romans, they fit together. What is God doing? He says, don't you know what what God said when Elijah was, was against Israel? 
So this is what, what Moses, uh, what Elijah is saying. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I'm alone, the only one left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to that? I have restored for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed down to the knee of Baal. And even so, then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, what does the election of grace mean? It means those who are coming by grace alone. They are my chosen ones. The ones who are trying to do it by the law, the ones who are trying to do it by by their national heritage, they're not going to make it. And there's people who are coming to Christ through the election of grace. And if it's of grace, then it's no more of works. So God is not impressed by an outward show either. Let's go over to... 1 Kings again, 1 Kings chapter 18. So, so he's going to get Elijah's uh, attention here. So God said, go and stand on the mountain, verse 11, before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore through the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. You know how long the hype lasts? Sometimes it can last for a while. There was a church down in Florida. I think it was Brownsville. And people from everywhere were flocking down to Brownsville. Got to get some kind of special anointing down there because God's doing something wonderful, something something really powerful. And if you don't get down there, you're not going to get all of God. That kind of stuff lasts for about a month. But what sticks? What is it that stays? It's God's still, small voice in the Bible. You want to hear from God. Don't go look for the big fanfares. Don't go look for those great expositor teachers because you're not going to find one here anyway. What do you you need? You don't need somebody who's going to come out here and press you and wow you. All I want to do is point you to God's still, small voice because that doesn't change. It's consistent. It's not something that's going to give you a a pep talk, a quick emotion, a quick high. It's God's still small voice. God is not impressed with all the outward show. We are so carnal in the way we think of what God... I remember thinking this one time. I was witnessing to this guy, and I was praying for this family, and I thought, boy, if God got a hold of this person, man, he could really use him because this guy's a mover and a shaker. You know what God sometimes does and what God delights in doing? He delights in taking tax collectors, right? Fishermen, Roman zealots who are going to stick a knife in somebody. And he says, I'll take this coalition of misfits because my treasure doesn't dwell in something magical or mystical. I take clay jars and I put my power in it so the excellency of power is not of you but of God alone. And this is what God is trying to teach Elijah here again. 
Number three, get rid of the Elijah complex for a vigor of recommissioning. So God shows Elijah that he's only there in that still small voice, the quietness of the word of God, the power of the word of God to change hearts. Verse 15 through 18. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael king over Syria. So what God is trying to get a hold of Elijah here, he says, you know, Elijah, there is a time for judgment. But our God is a God who delays judgment until the last possible moment. That's how loving and gracious and kind our God is. Look at all through the Bible. Noah. God said there is not a single heart that's not corrupt and wicked. It's come before me and I am grieved that I have to destroy the earth. Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham prayed, God, if there's 50 people, please spare. God, if there's 40 people, please spare. God, if there's 30. God, if there's 20. God, if there's 10. God says, you know what? They finally at the point of no return. Our God is so long-suffering and patient. And when we judge and when we want to bring judgment, we're saying, God, we think the time should be now. And God's saying, you know what? You go anoint Hazel, and he will do my work, but I'm going to give more and more time for my nation to come back to me. And he says, you know what? Hazel, he's not going to do it all either. I'm going to still give more patience. I'm going to still give more time. I'm going to give the house of Ahab four generations. And then enough is enough. And then I want you to anoint Jehu. Jehu is quite the guy. Jehu finally got rid of Baal worship in Israel. So what Jehu does is he calls for a huge party for all the Baal worshipers. He says, the family of Ahab, they worship Baal. You ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to put on a party for Baal like no one has ever seen before. I'm going to send out invitations to the whole country. So they all come. They gather themselves in the temple. He says, I want you to make sure there's nobody here that's a server of Yahweh. Make sure that, that they're not here part of this party. Get, kick them out if they are. Now that he's got them all, he says, get rid of them. God says, there will be a judgment day coming. And then what about old Jezebel? God gave Jezebel a lot of time. It was Elisha who finally calls Jezebel out. He says, Jezebel, one day the dogs are going to eat your flesh and they're going to leave your body out on the field. But Elijah, that's not for you. That's not what I've called you to do. I'm calling you to work in people's hearts, to change one individual. If it's a woman in Zarephath, that needs to be enough. So if we're discouraged, first of all, why are we discouraged? Is it the success syndrome? 
Is it something that we feel that God has called us to do and it didn't work the way we wanted it to work? I tell you, that gets me down. God, I feel like I know that this is what you want me to do and I can just see all these wonderful things you're going to do through this, God. And then it doesn't happen. And it leaves me discouraged. It leaves me in despair. God is saying, that's not what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to be faithful. Am I discouraged because I'm not listening to the voice of God? Am I listening to the voice of my flesh? I want to get vindication from this right now. That's what Elijah's saying. I want you to take Ahab out. I want you to take Jezebel out. God, I want you to bring judgment on this nation. And God's saying, you're not listening to me. That's not what I'm about. I'm about extending my mercy and my grace and my forbearance. And then I'm not trusting God to take care of what I think should be done. God says, I'm going to take care of it. It's my timing. It's my way. And when and how I do it, that's not up to you. It's up to God. So God appoints these three people. And Elijah never saw any of this. He never saw Haziel bring the judgment on Israel. He didn't never he had to see this all by faith. Ben-hadad was the king of Damascus at that time. Elijah's gone. He's up in the whirlwind. He's taken up in the chariot. He never saw that. It was Elisha who went to Ben-hadad when he was sick. And Ben-hadad says, "Am I going to recover from this?" He says, oh, yeah, you're going to recover, but you're going to die. Didn't make a lot of sense. You're going to recover, but you're going to die? Yes, because Haziel, his servant, was going to go into his room and throw a blanket on his face and smother him. And Elisha is looking at him, and he says, this is who you are, and he begins to weep. He says, why are you weeping? He says, because God has shown me what you're going to do to the nation of Israel because they've refused to repent. You're going to come and burn our cities. You're going to kill our young men. You're going to kill our women. And you're going to dash those who are pregnant. God is going to take care of it. God will judge sin, yes. But Elijah, it's not for you to tell God when and where and how he's going to do it. Elijah never saw that. Elijah never lived to see Jehu anointed as king. It was Elisha who went and anointed Jehu. And it was Elisha's prophecy that was fulfilled about Jezebel. So sometimes God just wants us to live by faith through the things that we just don't understand and the things that we don't see transpiring in our ministries. So I hope that helps us today with discouragement. Let's get over the success syndrome and let's be concerned about being faithful to God because God says that's a success in my book. Let's listen to the voice of God and not our carnal fleshly whims and let's trust the future to what God has got in His timing and under His control. Let's close in prayer. Father, there's not a one of us, God, that doesn't face discouragement. And Lord, I know when I'm discouraged, it's because I have gotten my eyes off of you.
I've got my eyes on myself. God, I forgot what you are wanting to do, and I forgot, God, that you don't always work in these final big swoops, but sometimes, God, you just work in the little, tiny, insignificant, everyday things of life. Father, I praise you and I thank you, God, for the faithfulness. I thank you, God, for the steadfastness of the people at North Valley Bible Church, Lord. God, I thank you. I thank you, God, for the 16 years that this church has been established. I thank you, God, that when there were only 10 people coming or whether there's 70 people coming, God, it is a success. And God, whether we stay at 70 for the next 50 years, God, it is a success if we preach and teach God's word. And God, if we lovingly reach out our hands, just like you lovingly reach out your hands to a lost world, then God, we are a success. And God, if by faith we just trust you for what we don't understand, then God, North Valley Bible Church will be a successful ministry. So God, liberate us. Liberate us from the success syndrome. What the world says you need to have in order to be a successful church. God, we desire to please you and to do what you have called us to do here in northern Utah. And so help us not to compare each other with other churches, with other ministries. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as our goal and as our reward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.